0: The goal of God's work in us is to bring our lives into harmony and agreement with his own righteousness, and so to manifest to ourselves and others our identity as his adopted children. We discover in God's law a picture of God's own image to which we are being progressively conformed, but since we are lazy and require prodding and encouragement in this, it will be helpful to construct in this work a model of the mature Christian life from various passages of scripture so that those who are truly repentant of heart will not lose their way on the path to greater conformity to God's image. Those are the opening words of John Calvin in a little book on the Christian life, uh, which is a book that we studied is part of our equip series. uh, So we covered this uh, last month in May Uh, on our Friday night equip seminar then. And we're doing a podcast for that today uh, because the recording that night did not work as it was supposed to running into some tech issues there. Um, But this may be better in the end anyways. So uh, what we're gonna do is I'm going to uh, talk through uh, much of what I uh, taught on and gave background to that Friday night and then uh, after that which We'll, we'll see if I can get through that a little bit quicker than I did that evening. Um, then um, we will I'll actually have two uh, church members join me and uh, just to, to hear from them what they uh, were struck by in the book, how they benefited from this book, and we'll just have a, a short conversation that you get to listen in on uh, about this uh, book by John Calvin. And so to, to start, I just want to give uh, kind of some general historical background on on, uh, Reformation, but really on on John Calvin and his life. And once we uh, give some background on him, I'll run through just a summary uh, of this book. I'll I'll say from the outset that if you have not read this book, I hope that you are um, spurred on to read it uh, by listening uh, to this uh, podcast. Um, It is the best short little book on the Christian life uh, that I have uh, come across um, it's really not long at all. Um, and it's really written, um, at a very easy to understand yet heart provoking level. So with that, um, let me give, uh, get into this. So, um, again, this is about a little book on the Christian life by John Calvin. And so just some historical context for this. Um, so Calvin, uh, was a reformer. Um, and so, uh, the, the, reformation, uh, was in the, in the 1500s, and just a, a couple of dates to kind of give some fence posts here. Uh, 1517 is when Luther posted his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, just five years later, uh, Ulrich Zwingli, uh, another reformer, uh, really begins the Reformation in Zurich, Switzerland. And then uh, 14 years after that, 1536, uh, Calvin uh, writes the first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion which is the, the written work that he's most uh, known for. And that same year, he arrives in Geneva, Switzerland, where he would do um, most most of the ministry of his life. And uh, just one more date, 1559, uh, John Knox, a uh, reformer in Scotland, he, he returned to Scotland, and the, the Reformation had begun in Scotland um, at that time, or before then, but when John Knox returned, it really um, spurred things on um, with, with much more speed uh, at that point. So... Again, much more could be said on that, but just a couple dates there. Um, but Calvin, uh, John Calvin himself uh, was a quiet scholar, uh, not one to be the center of attention. Uh, there's lots out there that's been said about John Calvin and Martin Luther, and uh, just the, the contrast between these two men and their personalities— um, whereas Luther was probably much more um, kind of in your face and, and more, you know, the guy you want at the party. And right, you're if you get invited over to Luther and his wife uh, Katie von Bora's house, then um, you know it's gonna you're gonna be uh, sitting around the table uh, having hearty discussion, drinking uh, beer, just having kind of a more of a grand time. Whereas Calvin, uh, much quieter, uh, much more subdued, and in the background, and just not wanting to be the center of attention. So. Um, that you know, In some ways, that, that may be painting with a broad brush, but uh, I just want to get, uh, give you a sense of um, Calvin, uh, even in contrast to Luther. Um, as far as his writing goes, uh, I think Calvin writes very clearly, uh, very orderly, and very pastorally. Um, and for those of you who have read this book or who will read this book, um, I think you'll see that and you'll, you'll get that. You'll see his pastoral heart. And it's also very easy to follow him in what he's saying, um, so that's very helpful. Uh, he also is a man acquainted with uh, historical writings, and, and uh, that includes uh, Scripture, but also church fathers and um, those outside of uh, the church who have written uh, philosophers and others who are famous. So he he's just well read and uh, makes many historical references um, outside of his writing. Uh, Calvin uh, was, was plagued by ill health for much of his life. Um, we'll, we'll touch on that here in a moment. And uh, one, one uh, biographer I was reading uh, just commented that he was often or always fasting to, to one degree or another. Um, and so that's hopefully just gives you a sense um, of Calvin there. But I uh, want to run through um, just a kind of a timeline, a brief timeline, hitting some of the key dates in his life. And so July 10th, 1509, uh, Calvin is born in Noyon. Then uh, that's just north of Paris in France. Uh, so 1509, so again, 1517 is when Luther uh, posts the 95 Theses to the church door. So Calvin uh, is just eight years old uh, at, at the time. Uh, but then at the age of 12, 1521, Calvin is sent to Paris to study theology. And that's uh, with an aim towards uh, the priesthood. Uh, but then his his father changes things up. A couple of years later, fifteen twenty six, he's sent to study law instead of theology. And uh, while he's studying law, kind of over these couple of years, um, he he's exposed to um, some new things, some some teachings, some things that are um, kind of some thoughts that are uh, prevalent at the time and, and coming about. Uh, one of those is is Renaissance humanism. And this would be different than what we would probably think of when we say humanism today, which would be more secular humanism. But uh, Renaissance humanism more, um, is more about um, just a desire to go back um, to the sources. Um, and so to, to read and be acquainted with and know um, the ancient uh, Greek, Latin uh, writings, uh, to go back to these sources um, and uncover uh, what they um, say. Um, And so uh, there's a lot of study of languages, and that's um, of great benefit for the church as there's more interest in studying of the Greek language and the Hebrew language and so more study of the scriptures in their original language. Um, It's also around this time that Calvin is exposed to Reformation teaching. Uh, So again, the Protestant Reformation is underway at this time, and and through this, his study in law, he comes across some others who are— really preaching the gospel and teaching, Reformation teaching, um, later, um, well, at some point during this time, uh, Calvin uh, wrote down, uh, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. Calvin had become really a lover of Jesus Christ uh, during this time. And so this is when uh, it, you know we, we see Calvin being uh, converted and coming to faith in uh, Christ uh, sometime around 1526, 1530, somewhere in that, that time frame. But uh, moving on in 1535, uh, Calvin then has to flee France. So as the Protestant Reformation gets underway, there's opposition, there's persecution. Um, there there are some who, who are for this and some who are not, and it, it gets intense in different places at different times. But in 1535, Calvin has to flee. He has to get out of France. And so he, he leaves, and the next year, 1536... Um, he uh, early in that year he writes uh, his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and this is a book that would he would write uh, multiple editions of. He would he would write it in 1536, but then he would add to it, refine it, tweak it. Um, he really added a lot to it over the years. Uh, but at this point, when he first writes this first edition, he's 27 years old, and later that year, 1536. He arrives in Geneva. Um, He's intending just to kind of stop over there um, on his way. um, I believe it was to Strasbourg. But he stops in Geneva and ends up staying in Geneva to minister there. And this is at uh, the request of a guy named Farrell, who strongly requested Calvin to stay there. So he does. But that doesn't last too long. Uh, Two years later, 1538, Calvin is exiled by the city council. Uh, They don't want what he's teaching. They don't want him anymore. And so they kick him out. And at that point, he goes to Strasbourg, and there he serves as minister as well. He meets another reformer by the name of Martin Bucer. In Calvin's personal life, uh, 1540, he was married to Idolette de Bure, and she was a widow who had two children, and so she brought them into the marriage. Uh, So 1540, he marries her, and uh, they have one child together, uh, name is Jacques. But at, in, born in 1542 and died in 1542, um, just two weeks after his birth. And uh, Calvin would later write of this, The Lord has certainly inflicted a severe and bitter wound in the death of our baby son, but he is himself a father and knows best what is good for his children. And uh, for those of you who've read this book, you'll see Calvin teach and counsel words that are very similar to this. Um, But he wasn't a man who didn't know suffering and didn't know loss. Um, He knew it. And uh, this is um, what he believed and what he counseled himself with um, as well. Um, So his only son born to him was born and then died two weeks later in 1542. Um, Continuing with his personal life, 1549, uh, his wife dies. So Adolette dies, uh, and that was really following multiple years of illness. Um, She had been on a kind of four or five-year downslope of health and uh, when she dies calvin writes this i struggle as best i can to overcome my grief i lost the best companion of my life and so um calvin loved his wife and uh, very grieved um, saddened uh, deeply saddened uh, at her loss uh, they were married for nine years so uh jumping back um to the timeline again he was married in 1540 uh, but 1541 uh, he returns to geneva uh, so he was in Strasbourg ministering there and geneva actually sends for him uh, asking him to come back so it's just three years after uh, they had told him to get out and so uh, calvin didn't want to go uh, he didn't want to go back to the place who had kicked him out and uh, but he he's encouraged to go he's urged uh, by both feral And Martin Butzer, these two men that we've already mentioned, he's encouraged by them to accept it. And Calvin said of this, I would prefer a hundred deaths to this cross. Uh, So something he didn't want to do, but he ended up uh, accepting and returning. So he returns in 1541, and uh, there's kind of this historical moment of suspense as he gets back into the pulpit there uh, when he returns. And there's this kind of looming question of what is this guy going to... Teach on what's he going to say? What's he going to preach on? Uh, because we kicked him out three years ago, and now he's back, and uh, you just wonder what what is he going to do with that opportunity? Well, Calvin just starts preaching on the very next passage from where he left off three years ago. Um, Calvin didn't didn't have an axe to grind uh, with them. He was there to preach God's word and minister God's word to, to these people. And that's what he did. And I uh, just think that's a very helpful uh, thing for us to see of his uh, valuing of God's word. And uh, on that note, and he, you know, at different times, different seasons uh, of his life, he would preach different amounts of times or different days in, in preaching and teaching. Um, but just one uh, biographer, kind of a sample, um, an idea of what a week looked like for Calvin is that he would preach twice on Sunday, daily, every other week and that he would also lecture three times a week. Um, And so, again, that shifted at different times, but that gives you a sense of what kind of a week looked like for John Calvin. Um, And in his life, he preached over 2,000 sermons. Um, So lots of preaching, lots of teaching, uh, high value of God's Word. So a couple years later, 1553, um, again, even though Calvin's back, they're... um, is opposition to him there in Geneva? There's uh, kind of the anti-Calvin party, if you will, who uh, doesn't want him there. Um, so, following years of intense opposition in Geneva, in 1553, Calvin, um, just to give you a sense of this, he says, while serving the Lord's supper at the Lord's table, he says, "I will die sooner than hand, I, Sorry, I will die sooner than this hand shall stretch forth the sacred things of the Lord to those who have been judged despisers. And so unwilling to budge on that, even amidst uh, opposition. Well, two years later, 1555, the local anti-Calvin party is no longer in power, and some are forced uh, to flee. Uh, Some just aren't in power anymore. And so this really gives Calvin a a newfound sense of freedom there. Um, And one of the things that Calvin longs to do is to evangelize France. So, again, he's a Frenchman born north of Paris, but he is serving in Switzerland uh, kind of as as a refugee uh, there. Uh, But he longs for his uh, people, his Frenchmen, fellow Frenchmen, to um, know the gospel and have the Reformation teaching come to them and for churches to be built up there. So um, Calvin focuses on that uh, from 1555 onward. um, That's planting churches, sending missionaries, establishing printing presses, um, working on secret networks. Um, these kind of things, and to give you a sense of how God used that, in 1555 there were five uh, Reformation Reformed churches in France, just five in the whole country. Well, four years later, 1559, Calvin and Geneva had planted a hundred churches in France, and then just three years later, 1562, um, there were 2,150 churches planted by Calvin or Geneva. Calvin and Geneva and and their sister churches. So just an explosion of missionary and church planting and gospel proclaiming work uh, being done there. And again, I think this is uh, just very helpful to see. Um, You know, sometimes um, Calvinism is misrepresented, and sometimes Calvin himself is misrepresented. Um, This is a man who was missional at heart and wanted to see the lost uh, come to the Lord and, and preached and planted churches and trained up pastors and sent them out, many who would be persecuted. Um, but that's that's what Calvin was doing in these final years. Um, so 1559, uh, Calvin uh, releases his final edition of the Institutes of, of the Christian Religion, which at this point is now like 1,500 pages. And um, also around this time, he established a college uh, kind of for general education and an academy, almost think of a seminary. And so uh, wanting to really benefit all in the area and in the realm of education, but also specifically uh, training up pastors, missionaries, sending them out, equipping them for the work of ministry. And uh, through this, they sent missionaries, uh, like I said, to France, but also to Italy and the Netherlands, to Hungary and Poland, and even to Brazil. Um, So just a, a mission center Uh, of training and sending uh, pastors and missionaries. Finally, uh, May 27th, 1564, following a decade of failing health, Calvin dies. And so he's 54 years old when he dies, and he just is given a common cemetery with an unmarked grave. Um, And so you can't go visit Calvin's uh, grave today, anything like that. And um, it really seems that this is just exactly how Calvin would have it. Like I said, he, he was not the man who wanted to be the center of attention, um, was not, um, the, does not seem to be a prideful man, but one who was genuinely humble and chased after God's glory. And he didn't want his grave and, c- and cemetery location to be known. Um, he just wanted to die and and be gone um, like any other man. Um, so, Um, Let me read you uh, something you know, much of the material I'm sharing, um, it's coming from several sources, but a lot. uh, is coming from a book called The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves, where he um, it's it's a great um, introductory work toward about the Reformation. Um, And so just encourage you to read that. But uh, following that in in much of this and some other resources as well. But uh, let me read this for you just to give you a sense of what calvin faced in his failing health um this is late in life he says at that time i was not attacked by arthritic pains knew nothing of the stone or the gravel i was not tormented with the gripings of the colic nor afflicted with hemorrhoids nor threatened with expectoration of blood at present all these ailments as it were in troops assail me as soon as i recovered from a quartan ague and I'll acknowledge I don't know how to pronounce all these medical things he says here, but I was seized with severe and acute pains in the calves of my legs, which after being partially relieved returned a second and a third time. At last they degenerated into a disease in my articulations, which spread from my feet to my knees. An ulcer in the hemorrhoid veins long caused me excruciating sufferings, and intestinal ascarides subjected me to painful titillations, though I am now relieved from this vermicular disease. But immediately, after, in the course of last summer, I had an attack of nephritis. As I could not endure the jolting motion of horseback, I was conveyed into the country in a litter. On my return, I wished to accomplish a part of the journey on foot. I had scarcely proceeded a mile when I was obliged to repro- repose myself, in consequence of lassitude in the reins. And then, to my surprise, I discovered that I had discharged blood instead of urine. As soon as I got home, I took to bed. The nephritis gave me exquisite pain, from which I am from which I only obtained a partial relief by the application of remedies. At length, not without the most painful strainings, I ejected ejected a calculus, which in some degree mitigated my sufferings. But such was its size that it lacerated the urinary canal, and a copious discharge of blood followed. This hemorrhage could only be arrested by an injection of milk through a syringe. After that, I ejected several others, and the oppressive numbness of the reins is, is a sufficient symptom that there still exists there su- some remains of uric calculus. It is a fortunate thing, however, that minute or at least moderately sized particles still continue to be emitted. My sedentary way of life to which I am condemned by the gout in my feet precludes all hopes of a cure. I am also prevented from taking exercise on horseback by my hemorrhoids. Add to my other complaints that whatever nourishment i take imperfectly digested turns into phlegm which by its density sticks like paste to my stomach wow um this man knew um pain and suffering and lack of health um again I, i think that along with what we have read earlier um sometimes these historical figures they just seem like not people, um, as we look back and just know things about them. But to hear some of these things that he wrote about and experienced, um, I think does help us see um, the, the person behind the name of John Calvin. So anyways, that's a little bit of his background. Um, I want to say a little bit about the institutes of the Christian religion that he wrote, and then I'll give a summary of this book that we've been studying. Well, institute simply means basic instruction. And Calvin wrote the Institutes really as a helpful source to train Christians. Um, it's kind of the basics of the faith, uh, but also to train pastors. Um, additionally, it, it's, an, it's an aid um, to the exegetical work that he does in the Scriptures, or that one does uh, on your own in the Scriptures. He would write commentaries and stuff as well. Um, but this, really the Institutes, um, was kind of a framework or a broad uh, writing that would address so much uh, about the Christian life and about God and about us about the church um, that it would add to and, and, and be an aid to our exegetical work and his commentary work. Uh, so the first edition written back in uh, 1539, um, yeah, uh, sorry, 1536, uh, was written largely due to the historical context as well, though. Uh, it was written as, as an appeal to King Francis I amidst the Reformation and persecutions that were going on. And, and just defending the faith and um, showing that um, you know, those who believe this biblical reformed faith um, weren't—not uh, everybody uh, who was rejecting um, kind of Catholic dogma and the church's dogma um, were overreacting. There were some who were overreacting, uh, but Calvin was, was defending um, and just saying we are reasonable uh, people in this, um, and so that that was part of the original context. But then he, he added to that substantially over time. The Institutes was written both in Latin and in French, and just depending on the year and which version we're talking about. Um, initially, it was six chapters, but by the end, it grew to eighty chapters. And the final edition is comprised of four books, um, and that generally follows the Apostles' Creed. That's um, some people would would disagree with with that being the framework, but some people see it pretty clearly there. Uh, I think it, it makes sense to me personally, but uh, the, the first book uh, about the father, the second about the son, the third about the spirit, and the fourth about the church. Um, you can kind of look through his book and see that, I think that rough outline, again, not super tied to that, but I think it's a, it is a rough outline that he follows. Um, and then finally, so 1540, um, so again, the first edition was 1536, second edition was 1539. And so a year after that second edition, uh, was the first year that um, the book that we've been studying, A Little Book on the Christian Life, it's the first year that that was published independently. Um, so that section was included in the 1539 edition. And then a year later, um, somebody, I forget who it was, um, published that as a standalone, much smaller uh, book. And so if you have a copy of The Institutes of the Christian Religion, um, the a little book on the Christian life is, is found in Book 3, Chapters 6 to 10. And so um, this book that we're studying and and thinking about is just an excerpt from the Institutes of the Christian Religion. So with that being said, um, let me give just an overview of the book um, for just a few minutes and then uh, following that you'll get to listen in as me and two of our guests uh, have a conversation about uh, the book itself. So. Calvin opens the book in chapter one by laying out the goal of the Christian life, right? And that's what I read uh, to begin this podcast. Um, But the goal of Christian life is God's conforming of us to the reality that he's adopted us via union with Christ. This is God's fundamental work in us, that we would live like the children we are. And so so specifically, that means that we are to pursue righteousness, we're to pursue holiness. Uh, And and Calvin even adds, you know, why why have I written this book? Well, I'm, I'm giving a guide, a model to nudge along uh, believers on the path of growing as sons united to Christ, and so um, he's holding to uh, very firmly, and he does this throughout the book beautifully. Uh, he firmly holds to all that God has done graciously and sovereignly in our lives, and saving us and uniting us to Christ and making us sons by adoption uh, by the work of His Spirit in us. That that has happened, um, and so now he's he's firmly and boldly calling us to holy lives as children and to righteous pursuits as children of God and as those united to Christ. Chapter 1 just kind of lays that out. Uh, Chapters 2 to 3 then will speak of the necessity of self-denial and of enduring suffering. And then the final two chapters, 4 and 5, exhort us to meditate upon our future life with God and then how to consider and use the good things of this life. So 2 and 3 go together, 4 and 5 go together. So chapter 2 Calvin teaches that the basic call of the Christian life uh, is to a life of self-denial. And he's looking at Matthew 16, 24, um, where Jesus um, says, you know, let let anyone who would follow me deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So to deny himself, that's, that's chapter 2. That's what he's talking about. He also launches in this chapter from Romans 12, 1 to 2, and also from Titus 2, 11 to 14. Uh, And he shows that it is our duty to abandon ourselves, to abandon our interests, to abandon our self-rule, whether that's by our reason, by our will, by our desires, by our emotions, whatever we're ruling ourselves with, abandon it in worship of God. We are to turn from our fleshly desires and selfish pride to lives of self-control, uprightness, and godliness as God conforms us through the renewal of our minds. So self-denial has two aspects then. One is before others. And the second is before God. So first, before others, we are to love all others at all times and to all extents, submitting our concern for our own well-being to the good of others. Secondly, before God, we are to entirely resign our will and desires to His, seeing all happiness is only from Him, seeking only His ends, and contentedly, not miserably, entrusting whatever His fatherly hand brings our way. Chapter 3, then, Calvin elaborates on the second part of Jesus' call in Matthew sixteen twenty four. right? Don't only deny yourself, but bear your cross, take up your cross in following him. And so that um, is enduring suffering and trials, both patiently and willingly. Um, so he says, if, if the Son himself, if Jesus Christ, the Son himself, endured sufferings throughout his life and then chiefly at the end of his life, We also will endure sufferings out of our union with him. What what else should we expect? In bringing trials to us, our Heavenly Father uses them to conform us to Christ's image, to remind us of our own weakness in need of his grace, and to train us in endurance and obedience. When we encounter any trial and suffering, our call is to endure willingly, knowing that this is from the Lord, our Heavenly Father. And in bringing these trials, God is just, for we deserve worse, and God is good for he is promoting our salvation so we should see that and hold on to that Um, and just a note for you who are at Christ Community um, or who listen to our sermons uh, on this podcast feed um, Jim, Pastor Jim is going to be preaching on uh, Job chapter 2 well chapter 1 and chapter 2 this week and I think a lot of what Calvin says in chapter 3 is seen in Job uh, where he suffers so much and um, it's at the hand of Satan but it's um, given um, it's it's God who kind of puts Job forward and allows Satan to do this, uh, but what does Job do? He worships and he honors God, and so uh, just just can ask you to consider uh, those things together. So then, the last two chapters, chapter four, uh, Calvin calls believers to meditate on our future life in God's kingdom, where we will experience God's fellowship and enter His happiness. As we face this life's trials, we ought to consider its fundamental misery and turn our eyes to long for the next life, right? Don't don't like we should consider that this life really is a miserable one. Uh, that's that's what this life is. But we should long for the next and look towards it. And he says that this is something we often pretend as if to, as if we do well and as if we do it often, but in fact we are very poor at it. Indeed, he says we are not to hate this life but to contentedly live with gratitude to God as we entrust ourselves to him. So though, though full of misery, this life is a gift from our kind God. And what about death? Well, he says the Christian's joy and consolation must overcome any innate sense of fear. And uh, a quote from him from page 108 at the end of this chapter, he says, The cross of Christ finally triumphs in the believer's hearts over the devil, the flesh, sin, and the wicked when their eyes are turned to the power of the resurrection. So finally, chapter five, the closing chapter, Calvin rounds out his uh, exhortation from chapter four. Um, We're supposed to think on the future life, but in treating this life with contempt, how are we to use this life's comforts and goods? In short, seeing this life as a pilgrimage toward our future life, we should make use of these goods, whether they serve delight or necessity, to the degree to which they aid us in that journey and pilgrimage. So Calvin, right, a man living in Geneva, speaks of two steep cliffs, he says, first, cutting off all use that is for delight and indulgence. So some will say, um, you know, what do you do with this life? Well, you, there's no room for delight and indulgence. Cut it all off. But Calvin says that this reduces people to blocks of wood, uh, which I found that phrase uh, particularly helpful and, and striking. Um, so he says that's one, one cliff. Don't go there. The second cliff, however, is the other side, and this is the group that says everything is allowed. There's no restraint. Um, he says this paves the way for self-indulgence. And so he says both of these are cliffs. He said instead we ought to restrain ourselves by Scripture's general rules. So he gives general rules rather than specifics, um, and he says we should restrain, not cut off, but also not have zero restraint. Um, and these are the general rules he talks about in this chapter one, any good is given in order that we might know its author Two, indulge yourself very little aware of your fleshly desires. Three, patiently endure circumstances of lack. Four, uh, know that you will report your stewardship to God for everything you own. And five, know that every station of your life is given by God. So live within these. So a big picture summary, uh, just very short, you know, I think that what Calvin says the Christian is called to as he writes in this book, as he first says, and this is kind of throughout the whole book, this isn't in order, but this is just throughout the whole book. This is what he says from the reality that the Christian is these four things. So it's true that you as a believer are united to Christ. You as a believer are adopted by God. We as believers are called and commanded by God, the King, And we as believers receive everything as from the hand of God, our Father. So if those things are true or because those things are true, then we should live this way. We should do these five things. And these follow the chapters. One, pursue righteousness and holiness, chapter one. Two, deny yourself before God and others. Three, endure trials with patient and willing contentment. Four, meditate upon your future life, seeking happiness and hope there. And five, make use of this life's comforts as aids on your journey to the future life. So that is my attempt at a summary um, of a little book on the Christian life. Um, I've read this book now three times and I've been greatly helped by it. I hope that you will be encouraged to read it. Um, it's 120 pages, but like each page is tiny. Um, so you can read this. It's eight bucks on Amazon. Um, find it. Uh, buy it for a friend, uh, give it to someone you care about. Um, but uh, and, and something I'll mention too on that note is uh, the version we're using, which is a version I recommend, is by uh, it's it's translated by translated and edited by Aaron Clay Denlinger and Burke Parsons. Uh, it's put out by Reformation Trust, uh, a division of Ligonier Ministries. And so, if you just search for a little book on the Christian life, it'll probably pop up. Um, and I there was one more. Th- oh, the other thing I was going to mention before we transition to the next part is um, that was my summary uh, of Calvin. And I hope that it um, gives you something to think about and is, is helpful for you. Uh, but I want you to know that uh, Calvin does Calvin better than AJ does Calvin. Um, and so hopefully my summary can be of help. But um, go read this book and read it devotionally and meditatively and thoughtfully and prayerfully. Talk about it with those around you. Um, grow from it. Uh, I think that um, Calvin, he just he uses Scripture so well. He's very familiar with Scripture. You'll see that uh, throughout the book. He um, both talks about the, the beauty and the sovereignty of what God has done for us in salvation and the um, help that God gives us in leading us by the hand and providing a model and nudging and prodding us along uh, because we're stupid and weak and wayward. And, and Calvin talks about those things. Um, And and one of the other things you'll see throughout the book is that uh, Calvin, I think in every chapter, or at least pretty much in every chapter, um, he grounds, one of his groundings for his um, exhortations to us, is that everything that we experience, everything in our lives, everything in this world is from God's hand. And if that's true, it changes everything. If that's true, what I experience today is from God's hand, whether it's good, whether it's bad. Whether it's something I like, whether it's something I don't like, it changes how I see it. It changes how I respond to it. It changes how I act in it. It changes how I pray about it. And so um, I thought that was very helpful in seeing that. So again, go read the book. Um, But now, uh, here in just a moment, I will have two special guests join me. And uh, we're just going to, what I'm going to do is ask them to share. Um, some of their thoughts on the book, but then also for them to actually read one or two or maybe three quotes uh, each about just quotes that they benefited from. And we'll briefly talk about that. So hope you can stay tuned for that. So here we are for part two of talking about Calvin's A Little Book on the Christian Life. And I've got two special guests, two members of Christ Community Church with us. Um, And so uh, my wife, Krista Babel, is here and our good friend Sarah Bottomley is here with us as well. So thank you all for being here.
1: Yeah, glad to be here. Yeah.
0: So um, just as a little background, um, Krista and I met back in college and have been married now for 10 and a half plus years,
1: correct. So,
0: Good uh, job. It's the the half, you know, half ish plus. You know, coming up on eleven soonish, and uh, we've, we're awaiting the birth of our fourth child here in a number of weeks. So you're probably sure ready are. ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've known Sarah since 2000. What?
2: I don't know. Whenever when you when started with you, I was trying to remember if it was my freshman
1: or sophomore year.
0: Oh, I year? remember when? When? the first time eleven.
1: I absolutely <laughs> remember the first time I met you. So.
0: Was it she a freshman? Maybe?
1: <laughs> she could have been. Oh, I don't know. I just remember. Me. I can visualize it at <laughs> our funny. crew meeting in, okay. in the cave. So
0: so we've known Sarah for nine, ten years. Um, mm-hmm. and Sarah was a student uh, involved with crew while Chris and I served as staff. And then Sarah served on staff with crew now for the past six six years.
2: Six ish. Yeah, we're not
0: great with numbers here. <laughs> just just some amount of time. Um, and a, another fun fact um, is that a number of years ago, Sarah and I actually were interviewed together on, on radio. a radio show, which is kind of like you know the that. podcast of times
1: past. Uh, five or six years ago. <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> I mean, they had podcast, you know. But so this is kind of like you know. Radio show part two.
1: I thought sure. about that the other day when you were asking us to do this. I was like, Sarah's a pro.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, uh. Season pro, Sarah. <laughs> so, well, let me just ask you all um, just a couple of introduction questions before we get into the book and, and your thoughts on that. Um, but just one, um, why, and you can take this however you want and take it wherever you want, but why are you at Christ Community Church?
1: Crickets. <laughs> um well today for the podcast Um, but I mean in a in a sentence because the Lord brought me here and just it was when I was a student at ETSU that a girl that was involved with crew invited me here one Sunday to um, attend I'd been attending another church for a year um, here in town and the first Sunday I was here Another college student invited me home to her tiny little one bedroom apartment with a crock pot she had prepared. Um, and I think that that hospitality is what got me to come back again. And just, um, I heard the gospel preached and I heard the word preached and, um, in ways that I hadn't before. And that was three pastors ago, I guess. Yeah. But, um, but the hospitality also just kept inviting me in. Um, it was something I hadn't experienced. Anywhere else. Yeah. So, and that was 2008,
0: 2009. Yeah, I've somewhere
1: around there. Been here ever since um, as a college student, a newlywed, a new mom, and so now I'm an old mom. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. here since then.
0: Yeah. What about you, Sarah? Why are you a Christ um, community church? Uh,
2: the short answer I don't have a short answer. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> yeah, <I didn't> <laughs> i over the past few years a few summers ago started i don't know dealing with these theological questions that kept coming up like in my study of scripture and um aj and krista you guys have both been part of those conversations and kind of i don't know basically it got to the point of my convictions are enough that i wanted to look for a new church and so i had two options last fall on my mind to try out for different churches Christ community was one and there was one other um but I kind of knew that I was going to end up here because I've been around this church for so long yeah and so I feel like I've seen the inner workings of it I think I've mentioned this before it's like I remember Krista talking about being on the panel for
0: pastor jim yeah for for whatever you call that yeah
2: um i remember like when you guys started incorporating discipleship stuff into the church i remember like i've just heard all of these things about how christ community works from the inside kind of yeah (laughs) but on the outside um and so i kind of knew already that christ community was a church that valued the word and that's what i was looking for primarily um and then i tried it and it was exactly what i thought so here i am yeah so and you I'm so glad you I, started
0: visiting back in September I believe think September and, August yeah September. joined as a member November a couple months yeah. December
2: November yeah
0: yeah so uh, yeah and I remember even what you just shared now very similar to what you shared with our elders when we met with you mm-hmm. For that membership conversation so um, well good thank you all for for sharing that one one other question you know something when obviously when when we talk often Krista um, and Sarah Sometimes. we see you. Barely regularly, but, um, one of the things that I think all of us enjoy talking about is either, you know, podcasts we're listening to or books we're reading, and so you can talk about podcasts or book or both if you want to do both, but just what's something that you're reading or listening to right now?
2: (laughs) It's funny because it's literally the same book that it's in since January.
1: (laughs) That's okay. It sometimes goes that way.
2: (laughs) But I'm also reading, um... Imitating God in okay. Christ and um, delighting in the Trinity well, for my class. But
0: what's the one <laughs> since January? Uh,
2: Becoming Elizabeth. Elliot. A chance to die. I think. Uh,
0: okay. Which is about.
2: It's a, a biography on Amy Carmichael, who, okay. but Elizabeth Elliot wrote it. Okay. And I'll not be buying any more of her books. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And then I've been listening to, I got back into listening to a few episodes of the Cultish podcast. Yeah. And I still feel the same about it. Everything they say, I'm just like, yes, yeah. I agree. Which yeah. one did you just recently listen to? The Enneagram one. Oh. Uh, I don't recommend the Enneagram yeah. to people. Yeah.
0: <laughs> did it? Uh, Fascinating stuff. We're about to, like, <laughs> get I just, into a whole other I discussion and we'll off this on. We're on right now. No, that's good. More, um, you know, follow up with sarah about that that's what i'll encourage you but fascinating thoughts
1: krista i am always listening to a podcast right i know this i know (laughs) if i'm doing the dishes or folding laundry i am listening to a podcast but i have been reading um gentle and lowly yeah Mm -hmm. about dane orland dane orland i can't remember his first name that that sharon gave to everyone from the women's retreat i'm just really enjoying that um just and a lot of what she talked about the retreat really is so much from the book she said that a lot when i talked to her about it and then it's really proven to be true just that the the heart the core of christ is one of gentleness and tenderness to us Um, and that doesn't negate his holiness that doesn't negate um the law Um, but that I don't think that's always my first thought mm. about his yeah. heart towards us. Um, yeah. sure. I can tend to be pretty harsh with myself, um, so to see, or not harsh enough at other times. But um, I've just been enjoying that book. So, yeah. but and I've listened to some cultish recently. But yeah, you know,
0: so. yeah, good, cool. Well, um, I know y'all both are um, just y'all both love to learn and. Um, soak things up. And um, even in our own context, right, that we're doing this in place of our EQUIP seminars, and y'all have both been at many of those, if not all of those that we've Free done, food,
1: free childcare. Just shout oh, out right. to And it. there's, there's
0: <laughs> some stuff we talk about, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm just kidding. Well, well
0: um, thank you all again for being on here. I'm excited to hear your thoughts um, about Calvin's book and just what's been helpful and, and thought provoking for you. Um, again, what, what we're wanting to do just for y'all listening is um, I've asked uh, both Krista and Sarah to just pick two or three quotes uh, from Calvin that have been significant for them and to, to read those, share those with us, and then we'll all just kind of have a brief discussion about that and uh, you'll get to listen in. And my, my hope for you listeners is, um, one, that you're getting a taste of what Calvin says and, and even how he says it. Um, so I think it's, there's a lot there. Uh, but then also, you just get to hear us have conversations about it, and I hope that that may provoke and lead to your own conversations with others uh, about this kind of stuff as well. Um, so, with that, let me start us with one quote, and then I'll let y'all do the rest of the. the kind of the other quotes are coming from y'all. But um, early on, on, on page uh, tw- pages twelve to thirteen um, in chapter one, Calvin says this: "For true doctrine is not a matter of the tongue, but of life." Neither is Christian doctrine grasped only by the intellect and memory, as truth is grasped in other fields of study. Rather, doctrine is rightly received when it takes possession of the entire soul and finds a dwelling place and shelter in the most intimate affections of the heart. We have given priority to doctrine, which contains our religion, since it establishes our salvation. But in order for doctrine to be fruitful for us, it must overflow into our hearts, spread into our daily routines, And truly transform us within. And I just think that that really sets up the book um, in a very helpful way. That Calvin's talking about doctrine; he's high on doctrine. Doctrine is incredibly important, but doctrine isn't just something to be understood and grasped. It's life. It it shapes everything. It comes out everywhere. So, um, we don't have to discuss that. But any thoughts from you all on that quote, or do you just want to jump to the next quote?
1: When I read it, I was just like, yes, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's in line with stuff we've been talking about with the discipleship curriculum.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, That phrase where it says, we have given priority to doctrine which contains our religion since it establishes our salvation. Uh, Just the idea that if we don't truly know who God is, which doctrine is just a a Mm -hmm. condensation of knowing who God is from Scripture, then... If we don't believe in a true God, then we we can't truly be saved, um, because so
0: yeah,
1: it, it, it's not enough just to know those facts as he's saying right. here. But we have to start with the true facts.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And so not to throw out the importance of knowing doctrine and of knowing truth. Um. It's not enough to just know what is true.
0: Yeah. But
1: we can't negate it either. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think true doctrine is another word for reality. <laughs> true truth. Like it, it's real. It, it's yeah. true truth, and um, but it's not just to acknowledge its truth or its existence. It's to believe mm-hmm. and appreciate and cherish and follow and love all you know. Yeah, all those and the God that's behind it all. Um, well, uh, let's let's jump into some of the things that stood out to y'all um, and. Uh, We'll just kind of go chapter by chapter with some of the quotes um, that y'all mentioned beforehand. So, Krista, you mentioned from chapter 2 that there was a quote on page 39. So, why don't you just read that, and we'll just talk about it.
1: Okay. The Lord instructs us to do good to all people throughout the entire world, many of whom who are unworthy of such... Oh, man. My underlines are really getting in my way. (laughs) Over-underlined. Okay. Many of whom are unworthy of such good if judged by their own merit, but Scripture comes to our rescue with the best of reasons for doing good to all people. It teaches us not to regard others according to their own merits, but to consider in them the image of God to which we owe both honor and love. But the image of God should be more diligently regarded in those who are of the household of faith, because it has been renewed and restored in them by the Spirit of Christ."
0: that is is very good um i know in our our conversation beforehand you had mentioned with this quote that there's really two things he he touches on here and so the first is right just seeing that image of god in all people and how that changes things so what yeah why don't you just comment on that
1: um yeah i I think it's helpful um because it we don't have this need to have rose-colored glasses about reality about the nature of people um Oh, well, they meant the best. Mm -hmm. I I mean, there's something to be said for the phrase believing the best in others. But it's almost what I wish we would say instead is acknowledging that they're made in the image of God, seeing the image of God in others. And that's why we can give of ourselves, of our time, of our resources, um, not because of their worth. We don't have to try to find it in them, um, but because... Uh, their, their worth based on their actions, I mean, but because of the worth that's in them because they bear the image of God. Yeah. And it, it brings me back um, to the children's catechism, which I go over a lot with my kids, who made you God. And so just this, you know, I, even with my, my kids, with our kids, how they treat one another, I don't have to base it. When I'm counseling them in that and correcting them in that, I'm not basing it on how the other one has treated them. Well, did they do that to you? No who made them, God made them. So how do we treat things that God made? That's what I say to yeah. them sometimes. We treat them with respect and with dignity and with love and kindness. Um, and so it, it really takes, we, we don't need these rose colored glasses or excuses for people. Mm-hmm. We can acknowledge that. Um, we don't have to blindly believe good about people, but we can fully believe that they're made in the image of God yeah. um, and know that and then respect them and therefore respect God and honor Him in that way,
0: so yeah. it's helpful for me, yeah. And I, I found with this, where Calvin says, Scripture comes to our rescue, yes, <laughs> with the yes, best it's of a reasons, rescue, right? Like, we're we are to do good to all people. Um, and it's, it's interesting the timing for me on this. I'm working on uh, I'll be giving a wedding homily in, in a couple of weeks, and one of the things I was just writing in regard to that is that you know, a, a wife or husband's call to love and, and serve and respect each other. Like You can't do that based upon their worthiness of that because they're going to fail at that, um, at different times, but we're to do that because God has told us to, and even kind of what Calvin adds here is that they have the image of God in them.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and so, yeah, I, I just think that's, that's been very helpful to see, see that. But, and you mentioned earlier, this, the second thing he talks about, uh, the final sentence it says the image of God should be more diligent, re- diligently regarded in those who are of the household of faith because it's been renewed, it's been restored in them by the Spirit of Christ. And so this call to be good to all because of the image of God is for everybody, but he, he kind of underlines and highlights it in the people of God.
1: And of course, he's if you have the book in front of you, you see that's out of Galatians 6 right there. Um we're told that verse has always stuck out to me of being a little bit curious to me. Um, but I think Calvin brings some light to that for me. of Why is that? So Mm. we all bear the image of God, but that image is more clear and it's renewed in those who are being transformed by the Holy spirit. Um, so
0: that's good. So, and that's, that's from his chapter on self-denial and right. The idea there being, part of self-denial is to do good to others and whether that's what we want to do or not. And so seeing the image of God and others actually is an aid um, for helping us to do good to others. In that,
1: I think that that summary sentence kind of not summary, I guess it's in the middle, not to regard them according to their merits, but can to consider in them the image of God to which we owe both honor and love. Mm. And just keeping that, that premise at the front of my mind, in treating others like I won't have to constantly be evaluating what I owe others based on their merit yeah. um, and I don't want them to evaluate me that way either uh, but to honor them because of honor for the Lord
0: yeah And I, I know for me and I expect for everyone listening that this is the this reality this truth this doctrine is something that we need every day yeah um, there's probably not a day that goes by that I don't want to repay someone according to their merits, mm-hmm. in a negative way, or treat them with a little bit less than whatever. Um, and so, this counsel from Calvin, and, and like you said, based well, part of it based upon Galatians, some of it just based upon Genesis and biblical testimony in general. Um, it's something that I I just I see the need of every day um, in it. So, um, well, let me jump to chapter three. Again, that was chapter two, um, just something from there. Um, Sarah, you had two quotes from chapter three. Well, well, we'll take those in order here. So the first one you mentioned was from from page 60. And so chapter three, again, is on on self-denial uh, or self-denial but bearing our cross. And so enduring trials, suffering difficulties as part of that. So page 60, what do you got?
2: Um... And that first paragraph says, however, there are many reasons why we ourselves must spend our lives subject to a constant cross. First of all, there's the fact that unless our own weaknesses are regularly displayed to us, we easily overestimate our own virtue, being by nature inclined to attribute all good things to our own doing. (laughs) So when I read that, I still have the same feeling when I read it now. Every time I read it, I guess laughter. it's like, oh, ouch! <laughs> Uncomfortable laughter. <laughs> yeah. Uncomfortable laughter. So what, because why is that? Yeah. it's just very true. I think that mm-hmm. we tend to like give ourselves credit for um, all good things that happen to us or good things in our life, like, and we give God credit quotations um, whenever bad things happen. <laughs> like as if somehow we have caused um, good things to happen because naturally we can do that. Yeah. Which is just not true. And so when we're in the face of our own weaknesses, um, we are humbled like before Mm -hmm. God and we can, I feel like more so recognize his grace toward us, which is what it says on page 61 too. I didn't include that earlier, but just one sentence there says, indeed the holiest among us know they stand by God's grace and not by their own virtues. Mm -hmm. So I just underline that. It stood out to me because it's like, this is true. And also this is a reminder to check myself, (laughs) to be humble. Um, And I think, you know, it could relate also to the quote we just talked about. Just like, we don't, I mean our worth or value is not based upon our merit, you know, Mm -hmm. whether that's good or bad. And so we always have to be reminded of our need for God's grace.
0: Yeah. And it's, I think it's very um, telling that this is right in the context of suffering and bearing our cross. And right. He says that this is actually a benefit to our suffering, (laughs) This is one of the benefits, he mentioned several in this chapter, but one of the benefits of trials is that we're reminded that we're not all we're cracked up, all that we think we're cracked up to be. Yeah. Um, and so maybe I can ask, ask you ladies, um, are there any examples that you think of of, <laughs> of seeing this? And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be personal, but in general or personal, but any ways that you can think of, of how our suffering and a trial and a difficulty we walk through actually reveals our need of God and that we can't stand on our own kind of, kind of idea. And if not, I've got one that I've, it comes to mind. But.
1: Why don't said, you start? I'm yeah, sure we do. I <laughs> an
0: e- easy one is kind of silly in some ways, but I think it's very true. It's something that probably many of us experience, um, often. So Chris, I could, I could just ask you and it would come to your mind quickly, but, um, if I get hungry
1: Oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> Right
0: I, I'm much much more quickly I much more quickly become impatient and irritable and unloving. Right. Those aren't just words. Not just are, you though. Oh, me right? too. I mean so. I am much it's much harder for me to fulfill First Corinthians thirteen when I'm hungry. Yeah. And like that's such a it's just hunger. Like if, if my food gets delayed twenty minutes at the restaurant, I'm irritable. And again, that's a tiny little cross to bear, so to speak. But it, it does reveal to me my own weakness. Yeah. Um, and there, there's larger things than that. But that's, I think that's just a daily something that we experience that does show mm-hmm. we well, you don't you're not as strong as you think you are.
1: He says here, right after the quote that Sarah pointed out, there's no better method for God to curb such arrogance than by demonstrating to us through experience our weakness and frailty. And I think what you're hitting on is something I feel like I've learned anew in motherhood of, like, the weakness of my body, the weakness of—in in that idea of, like, exhaustion and or hunger or tiredness, um, that my sin just so much more quickly comes to the surface. And it's not that it wasn't there, um, but just— really the the need to be humble even about our need for rest and our need for mm-hmm. sleep mm-hmm. I cannot do everything um, and I can't do anything well if I try to do everything or to yeah. do too many things and you know I jokingly say sometimes I don't just carry granola bars in my purse for the kids you know sometimes are <laughs> for you or for me um, we're out somewhere just, yeah. it, it shows us you know how, how deeply tied our attitude is to our physical state yeah. Um, that mm-hmm. The Lord has given us the need for sleep and food as a reminder that I have as as much of a daily need as I have for sleep and food, I have that moment-by-moment moment need for the Lord as well. Yeah, And that I, I don't just eat once a year. I don't just sleep once a year or once a week. So I can't just take nourishment from Him on that same interval of once a week or something like that. But that um, I am prone to... <laughs> am sinful yeah. and uh, yeah so yeah i think that that's a really small thing we talk about it sometimes as like the paper cut suffering it's like no that's it's not really an injury but it's like the paper cuts like that yeah sometimes those little things just feel like a thousand paper cuts and you just bear with it or you yeah. should but sometimes <laughs> we want to complain right. about them yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah i
2: think so I was trying to think of an example. Um, But the examples this gives is that God afflicts us with disgrace, Mm -hmm. poverty, childlessness, illness, and other troubles. And um, it says we are quick – for our part, we quickly crumble before such blows, (laughs) being far from able to withstand them. And when I read that, I was like, okay, I think what comes to mind for me is, like, what I would – claim to be oh a good virtue of mine is that I think that I can handle stress well but then when things start to pile on top of me um in different situations and it becomes unmanageable I crumble before those blows Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) so for example uh like at my previous job um You know, if I was charge nurse, it's like, oh, I deserve this. But then it's like you get all the responsibilities of the charge nurse plus the responsibilities of the regular floor nurse. And then all of a sudden, all these things happen and you're the one that has to answer all the questions or answer the phone or answer the pager or get patients moved or whatever. And there was one day that I was just like, I can't handle this. And I just like went into my manager's office and I was like, I cannot do this. And it was just like... I was reminded of like when I was thinking about that just now it's like I was reminded of how God is he does not grow weak or faint or weary mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know I'm butchering that <laughs> but I think it says it in Isaiah 40 yeah so
1: but I do I definitely yeah. do so that's it's yeah, good to it. be reminded how much other God is than mm. than us um, yeah nope <laughs> If God was just like me there's no way He could save me yeah, um, right so
0: mm-hmm. yeah and I you know I think that at first this quote and this idea calls it it's um, it's unsettling and kind of revealing of our sinfulness and weakness mm-hmm. um, and I think it should and, and I guess just a word to those listening um, I would invite you to that um, but I think also there's an invitation in this that when you face weakness and suffering and trial, whether it's the small daily thing of traffic and food and hunger and whatever, or whether it's major things. And right, he mentions here, as Sarah read, disgrace, poverty, childlessness, illness, other troubles. I mean, it could be major stuff. We're gonna look at Job one and two this Mm -hmm. Sunday. Um, But whenever we face those, there's a, like God is calling us, like, hey, recognize that your virtue is not your own and that you need me, and you need my grace, and you need my provision, and you need my not getting tiredness. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I think that there is an invitation not only to see our sin and weakness, but also to see the goodness and provision and might of the Lord. And so whatever trial you face today, small or big, um, see that in the Lord. Um, But we'll we'll move on to another quote here from the same chapter. Um, Sarah, you had one from page 81. Right. Yeah, 81. And, and again, this is still on the same chapter, chapter 3, of self, uh, self-denial regarding um, difficulties, trials, and whatnot. So go ahead and read that for us.
2: Okay. Um, so near the bottom of 81. So it will be that no matter what kind of cross is placed upon us, we will steadily maintain endurance even through the narrowest straits of the soul indeed adverse circumstances will keep their bitterness and we will feel their bite when afflicted by illness we will groan and toss and long for health when pursued by poverty we will feel the stings of sadness and anxiety we will bear the weight of sorrow at dishonor contempt and injustice when loved ones die we will naturally weep but this will always be our conclusion nevertheless the lord has willed it therefore let us follow his will Indeed, this thought must intervene in the midst of sorrow's very stings, in the midst of our groans and tears, in order to incline our hearts to endure those things with which they are afflicted. So I think the thing that stood out to me most when I was first reading this is like, um, we don't have to be a stoic, as I guess what this is saying. Yeah. Um, That we're allowed... And it's natural to feel the sting of affliction um, or sorrow or grief or naturally we weep when somebody we love dies. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Nevertheless, like that's the most important thing. Nevertheless, our conclusion should be the Lord has willed this, And so that should give us comfort but also that doesn't negate like what we feel in the moment. So I think that it just addressed that and I wasn't really expecting it, I guess, when I was reading this, mm. so.
0: Yeah, I, I was struck um, by that thought too of, um, I think earlier in that same chapter he talks about um, the idea that we should just be kind of stoic and mm-hmm. just kind of persevere and be unfeeling. Um, I think it's in that regard that he talks about that turns a man into a wooden post Um, (laughs) To a wooden post which is very striking because it's like yeah that's not human Um, that's not how God has intended it to be Um, and uh, I just thought his for lack of a better word his balance on this was very helpful and very challenging to me about like we should feel like it's right to feel sadness and anxiety and sorrow at these things and um, you know like that's okay Uh, we should groan we will groan and toss and long for health um, but we wrestle through that we endure through those feelings we have them but we endure and and come to the point and kind of wrestle with my God my Father has willed Mm -hmm. this, and that that brings us comfort even in the same time that we're feeling the grief and that I mean that's hard and I can think of Kind of you know seasons of my life of processing through the, the death of a friend when um, like the, the intensity of that despair and grief mm-hmm. is dark um, it's not light it's not you don't pass through it quickly um, it's deep and I mean I, I just think of um, our lives I think of lives of people at Christ Community Church there is darkness there is suffering there is difficulty that's real and very feeling um but his counsel here is to wrestle with that and come to the place where we say the Lord has will it. So, any any other thoughts from you too?
1: This may be where you're connecting back to, but it made me think back to page seventy six, and um, he says If there were no difficulty and poverty, no suffering and illness, no sting and disgrace, no horror and death. Then we would face these things indifferently, stoically. You can kind of <laughs> say. And what courage or perseverance could then be credited to us? Um, and at the very end of that section, he says, though wounded by sorrow and grief, the Christian, though wounded by sorrow and grief, he finds rest in the spiritual comfort of his God. Um, it's not that we're not called to the Stoicism. We're called to, to trust and to cling to the Lord, knowing that he is our rock, that um, his arms, his everlasting arms are underneath us. Um yeah, the, I think sometimes we can you know, take that idea of trusting the Lord and turn it into this, but that means you don't feel, that means you don't lament, that means you don't weep.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right.
1: When we see that Christ himself weeps over death um, in scripture and.
0: Right. Go read a psalm. Read a psalm,
1: yeah. <laughs> Just, I mean, it may be true to say. And, you know god works all things together for the good of those who love him it's not helpful to say that in the midst of <laughs> suffering and sorrow and no. um <laughs> uh, but um that's the ultimate place that the christian comes to yeah. is it nevertheless the lord has willed it yeah but it's that that processing of the first part of this is sorrowful this does hurt i yeah. am weeping when I, and
0: i think even with that cuz that's a very common Phrase, right? Romans 8. Yeah. Romans 8. Of, Romans 8. Uh, God works all things together for good. I, I think that there's a way to counsel someone or to counsel ourselves in a way that's trite
1: yes, regarding
0: that and in a way that's deep. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, I mean, Calvin's kind of on, on the side of the the deep side of that, if yeah. you will, where he's he's not saying, hey, God wills everything and so it's good. So, like, you shouldn't feel any pain. Like, it's all okay. He's not saying that. He's saying it's not all okay. And God has willed it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And God's going to use it for good. God's purpose, purposing it. But it doesn't mean everything's okay. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't be sad right now. And that's, I think that there is kind of that trite response sometimes. Trite. But there's a depth of, like, God has brought this about. And it is sad. and It is sorrowful. And it is grieving. But God has done it.
1: And I think it leaves us in awe of our God. Yeah. Um, as you contemplate whatever the thing is, you're contemplating that's hard. Um, And if you can come and the Lord brings you, you know, by his spirit to this place of nevertheless, the Lord has willed it. Therefore let us follow his will. And as he brings you there, it, it leaves you in awe of how he really can take the ugliest, the worst things and work them together for the good of his church. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and really contemplating what good means. Yeah. for the good of believers. Right. Um, and it, it should lead it. it does lead you to more worship when you bring it there. Um, so it's mm-hmm.
2: good. And I guess like tying back to chapter one, like when true doctrine does penetrate into the heart, mm-hmm. like, you know, the character of God and therefore can say, nevertheless, the Lord has willed it while holding anxiety and sadness and mm-hmm. like, mourning in one hand and like God's
0: mm-hmm.
2: character sovereignty etc in the other mm-hmm. if that makes sense
1: yeah
0: Yeah, because yeah, I, I think and this is something I mentioned earlier that pretty much throughout the whole book Calvin comes to you know, know that God your father has brought this about um, that helps us and um, again that that doesn't that doesn't mean that I understand why this situation is happening and what to do about it but it does mean I know who brought this situation about and I know who can handle it. (laughs) And I know who can hold me while I walk through it. Um, Mm -hmm. It it puts my perspective more on God than on the situation, what I need to do about it. Like Mm -hmm. I don't have to know I can rest in God, even if I'm crying, even if I'm anxious, even if I'm scared, even if I'm grieving. So, um, Okay. Um, so much more to be said. There's so much in this, um, but I hope this is at least thought provoking. we got, we got two more quotes that we want to touch on. Um, and so Krista, you had one from chapter four on page 91. And so chapter four, again, this is Calvin's counsel to, Hey, think on, don't think on this world. Don't hope in this world, but hope in the world to come, hope in the life to come with God. So page 91.
1: In the end, we rightly profit from the discipline of the cross when we learn that this life, considered in itself, is troubled, turbulent, attended by many miseries, and never entirely happy, and that whatever things we consider good in this life are uncertain, passing, vain, and spoiled, because they're mixed with many evils. And from this, we likewise conclude that we should expect and hope for nothing other than trouble in this life, and that we should set our eyes on heaven where we expect our crown, So indeed, we ought to realize that our souls will never seriously rise to the desire and contemplation of the future life, unless they've been soaked in scorn for this present life. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, really, I wanted to start on like page 90. Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I just, I I think that what it made me think of, um, especially just contemplating that thing. It's never entirely happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you ever just think, well, if this would happen, then I would be happy. And if this would happen, mm-hmm. then I would be happy. Um, and right. I think it's a blessing the Lord gives us sometimes to get on the other side of those ifs and to see that our heart still isn't satisfied if it's not satisfied in the Lord. Yeah. Um, that we can have good things and good gifts from the Lord and we should give him thanks and praise for those. But to recognize that of it, it works kind of paradoxically like the more you expect those things to satisfy you the less you will actually be able to enjoy them mm-hmm. um, yeah. good gifts from the Lord of health or you know I mean you're a great spouse but about to you to, to be the ultimate satisfaction in my life that's gonna disappoint me but um, yeah. to learn to to take the good and to accept it but to that our eyes are to be set on heaven Um where everything won't be mixed and tinged and polluted with sin and sorrow and disappointment. Okay.
0: That's good. And at, you know, at the end of what you read, he he says that we can't do this. Like mm-hmm. we can't. Our souls cannot rise to the desire and contemplation of the future life. Like we can't hope in that until they've been soaked in scorn for this present life. Um, And that's just not something I think about a lot, Um, but that unless I can see this life as um, vain and passing away and everything here is touched by sin, right, that's what he basically says right before this, unless I can really see that and be soaked in that, then I I can't even attain to the place of looking to the crown, looking to the fullness, looking to the everlastingness of the life. Come, that's that's just a challenging thought.
1: It is challenging for me. Um, all
0: right, so chapter five. So it was chapter four, chapter five. Um, he talks about well, what, what are we to do with this life? How, how can we use this life? And this was a quote that Sarah had had mentioned beforehand. Um, And it's pages 114 to 116. See, I heard you three pages. Hang in there. Um, So I'm going to read this for us. And I guess you'll get a sense for how short these pages are because this is two and a half pages. But (laughs) just listen. He says, We won't go wrong in the use of God's gifts as long as we let their use be governed by their author's purpose in creating and designing them for us. For truly he created them for our good, not for our ruin. No one, therefore, will hold a truer course than he who carefully considers this purpose of God's gifts. Thus, if we consider the purpose for which he created food, we find he had regard not only for our necessity, but also for our pleasure and enjoyment. So, too, with clothes. The purpose was our adornment and honor in addition to our necessity. In the case of herbs, trees, and fruits, he considered the pleasantness of their appearance and charm of their smell in addition to their various uses. If this weren't true, the prophet couldn't list among God's benefits wine, which gladdens the hearts of man, and oil, which makes man's face shine. And Psalm 10414 to 15 reads, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Calvin goes on, Nor could Scripture, in order to commend God's generosity, point out everywhere that he has given all such things to men. Even the natural qualities of things demonstrate how much and how far we can enjoy them. Would the Lord have dressed the flowers with a beauty that runs freely to meet our eyes if it were wrong to be moved by such beauty? There's the train, in case you can't hear it out there. Would he have endowed them with so sweet a fragrance that flows freely into our nostrils if it were wrong to be moved by the pleasantness of such fragrance? Isn't the answer obvious? Has God not distinguished colors in such a way as to make some more pleasing than others? Again, I ask, isn't the answer obvious? Isn't it clear that he made gold and silver, ivory and marble attractive, rendering them more precious than other metals or stones? In some, isn't it obvious that he has given us many praiseworthy things, even though they are not necessary? So, Sarah, this was your quote, so I'll let you lead off here.
2: It's funny because I think that the two like two of the quotes I chose, it's like I think very obvious that Calvin's refuting something that's like a popular argument uh-huh. in the time that he lived, which I think was stoicism and asceticism. Yep. And those are different I think. Anyways I <laughs> <now>. <laughs> So But the point being that we are permitted to enjoy the things that God has given us. Like, Uh you know, not to abuse them or anything or use them, you know, how they're not intended. But God has clearly given us things for our enjoyment as well as for our necessity. Mm -hmm. And so I think, A, that speaks to the character of God. And Mm. B, that speaks to, like, what our purpose is. And so when I was reading through this again today and before I guess it reminds me of the Westminster Shorter Catechism question one that says what is the chief end of man? and the answer is
0: to glorify and enjoy him forever yes
2: (laughs) to glorify God and enjoy him forever Um, and so um, you know what does it mean to enjoy God Mm. and enjoy the things that he's given us and I think that in part this speaks to that so I don't know and I've talked before with people about like when you think about music or colors or beautiful landscapes you know like what's the point we don't need them we don't need music yes we do I mean
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes no to live
2: I mean yes it could be argued But, like, people would say it's not a necessity to life. Right. Um, Right. Or, like, we don't need color. But those things are beautiful. And, like, God has intended them, like, for our enjoyment. So.
1: um.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, I think it's interesting to couple this quote with what we just discussed on the need to, um, what does he say? To soak in scorn the the present life
0: Mm -hmm. um yeah how do you put those
1: two together well (laughs) earlier in the last chapter he talks about the slippery ground that we're on and and really it's there's there's dangers on both sides of the of the ditch so to speak and one is to be obsessed with the goods of this world Mm -hmm. to to use um, God's creation of them as a license for our abuse of them uh-huh. and our idolization of them, and the other is to scorn what God has called good. Yeah. Um. I don't know. Feel like our hearts are a little ping pong balls sometimes between sure. yeah. between those. Um, right. Or maybe you find yourself more in one ditch than the other, but um, he has regard not only for our necessity but also our pleasure and enjoyment. Um, it's just. I think it's good to to contemplate this together there's two sides of it
2: yeah on page 117 it kind of addresses that saying like our fleshly desires Mm -hmm. should be restrained um when we think about these things and uh the second paragraph to start desire is bridled when we acknowledge that all things given to us are given in order that we might know their author this leads us to gratitude for
1: his kindness toward us mm-hmm. i think that's a good way to think about it but how can we be thankful if we drink and indulge in wine so much that we become dazed unable to perform the duties of piety to which we mm-hmm. are called like you mentioned at the beginning it's, it's the use not the abuse of god's gifts mm-hmm. yeah. that doesn't just apply to to wine of course
0: yeah and it you know, I, I think one of the things that shows is that enjoyment and pleasantness and pleasure and happiness like these things are are good and um, at least in one sense of the term are necessary for the fullness of life right mm-hmm. um, and that but but if we couple that with the last chapter that doesn't necessarily mean that we're to enjoy our chief enjoyment's not here
1: mm-hmm.
0: right our, our chief enjoyment like we have enjoyment here we're to enjoy what God has given us here we're to enjoy God himself here but our chief enjoyment is yet to come and we've, we've both of those things are true and we have to hold on to both of them. Uh, but I, yeah I was really struck just by seeing yeah God doesn't just care that our needs are provided for. God actually wants us to enjoy things. like he, he has made a diverse creation, a diverse world with lots of different animals, with lots of different plants, with lots of different colors, with lots of different sounds. Uh, he's given us lots of different, um, abilities to taste, mm-hmm. and all of that diversity points to Him as Creator, but it also points to our ability to enjoy, mm-hmm. and take in, and see beauty, and appreciate beauty, and um, yeah, it just, I just think it's great. Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: agreed. <laughs> Man, well, um, so that that was our final quote, and and that's a great place um, to end. But let me just ask you two again. I really appreciate you two coming on, and it's just it's just been fun to talk, and we probably want to keep talking even after we finish recording. But um, any final thoughts or anything that you just want to share about this book, or just just anything else that you want to share? You don't have to. But.
2: I think this was mentioned. This is not from me, but this was mentioned at the original Friday night seminar of like um, some people maybe thought that John Calvin would be very uh, dense in his writing. Like, um, I don't know how else to word that. Like, difficult to read. Like, very high-level theological sort of writing. He's so smart. He's
0: so this. He's so old. He's so whatever. Um, How can I ever read that?
2: But, like, this is, this book is not like this, like that at all. Mm. And it, this is the quickest I think I've ever read a book. It was, like, If I had enough time, I could have finished it in one day, two hours, (laughs) but I split it up over two days. And so I just think it's a, it would be good for anyone to read and easy.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you said a lot that it was quick and it wasn't dense. And I mean, I see the books that you're reading, you know, cramming in for your classes and (laughs) things like that. I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, But you it's not that I disbelieved you, but I didn't know the perspective, but it really is very accessible, very practical. Um, I've underlined about half the book. And yeah. I've watched you buy a couple copies for people over the past few weeks. And yeah. it, it is just an encouragement. It really is a little book on the Christian life. Um, and it is on the Christian life. Mm-hmm. It, it's very applicable to our day-to-day interactions with others and our how we relate to the Lord. Um, and I... I'd like to read it again, I guess. Mm So that'd
0: be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard other people say, you know, this book, not this particular one, but whatever book for them is a book they read every year. I'm like, huh, how could you do that? But I'm like, I think this could be the book for me that I read every year. (laughs) I mean, Uh,
1: it's good to pick one that's short. It's (laughs) so
0: short, but it is so full and just Mm -hmm. provoking and ministering. Um, So I've really enjoyed it. I'm glad to hear you all have enjoyed it. Um, Let me close. With this, again, just double clicking on um, the encouragement to, if you haven't read this book, read it, um, soak it up, think about it. Um, If you have or if you do read this book, a couple other kind of what what could you read next that would be have some connection to this. I'll give you just a few. One is go read um, the chapter on prayer from Calvin's Institutes. Again, this is just an excerpt from that from that larger work. But go read his chapter on prayer; um, it's it's phenomenal as well. Um, other than that, you could read the book called The Unquenchable Flame, which I mentioned is where much of the biographical information came from on Calvin. Um, it's a very short book, but it touches on kind of the key players, key places, key things from the Reformation. Very helpful. And then um, just another uh, kind of book from from back in the day. Um, you could read uh, from Saint Augustine, Confessions. Um, there's a multitude of different translations on that, um, but it's it's kind of his spiritual autobiography. It's addressed to to God, uh, but you kind of get to listen in on it. Um, in that, probably this book and that book, as far as kind of old books. Um, there's others, but those two have probably been the ones that have ministered to me the most. And so. I encourage you with that. But thanks for listening. Krista, Sarah, thanks again for joining me.